1956 until 1971, the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, conducted a series of projects that were meant to discredit and disrupt a collection of American political organizations, especially those that the Bureau thought might be subversive in some way. Their targets included the U.S. Communist Party, anti-Vietnam War activists, civil rights activists, and movements including those working toward feminist causes and those working toward racial justice-related causes, like Martin Luther King Jr. and his associates, folks involved with the Black Panther Party and other black power movements, alongside environmentalists, animal rights organizations, the American Indian Movement, and a flurry of movements surrounding independence for Puerto Rico. The FBI also periodically targeted far-right groups, like the Ku Klux Klan, but more frequently, they aimed at left-leaning and far-left groups, and used the far-right groups as proxies in those efforts, as was the case when the FBI armed and directed extremist members of the Minuteman paramilitary group, helping them form a subgroup called the Secret Army Organization which went on to target the aforementioned activists and organizations with violence and intimidation. In this way, the FBI could at times viciously assault organizations they didn't like without getting their hands dirty. They would let militant fringe groups they could weaponize and guide do it for them. The FBI has arguably used such tactics since the Bureau's inception, but these acts organized under the designation of COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program, were issued by the immensely controversial then-director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and are today generally considered to have been illegal due to how unconstrained and unmoderated some of these actions were. This is the program that led to the wiretapping of Martin Luther King Jr.'s phone, among many others, generally without cause, and it's the program that led to the spying, stalking, arresting, abusing, psychological warfaring, and general harassing of a great many people who just wanted, for instance, equal rights for women and people of color, and who wanted to challenge the then-prevailing assumptions that fossil fuels could be consumed at scale without environmental consequence. Co-Intel Pro was eventually halted in 1971, but this type of surveillance and behavior continued under other names, especially in the years immediately following its official cancellation, but even up until relatively recently, and presumably today too, though we have more evidence, for a variety of reasons, for acts of this kind perpetrated a decade ago than we do for similar theoretical acts that may be perpetrated today. A Freedom of Information Act request revealed, recently, for instance, that the FBI had infiltrated the Occupy movement, the umbrella movement that led to Occupy Wall Street and similar protests around the world in the early 2010s. Occupy Wall Street organizers were monitored by the FBI, and the Bureau took what they learned to warn and prepare the major corporations, banks, and investment institutions that would later come under assault by the protests telling them what to expect and when, based on this spying, and at times collaborating with them to prepare a response. Police forces around the country were part of this effort as well, and the New York Police Department in particular 
seemed to have worked hard to stymie the efforts of the Occupy group, at one time luring a crowd onto the Brooklyn Bridge so police could lock them in and systematically arrest everyone, an act that was later deemed to be illegal by a judge, while also generally using what watchdogs and judges labeled as unnecessary force over and over and over again, attacking, beating, and tear-gassing mostly nonviolent protesters, with few exceptions. It was later revealed that an undercover detective with the NYPD had infiltrated Occupy Wall Street, trying his best to become part of the group, to be known, to take part in the protests, and to sleep in tents with everyone else. All the while, though, reporting on what he learned about the group's plans, but also the individuals who were taking part, to the NYPD. This type of infiltration was not only undertaken by law enforcement, however. A conservative blogger also infiltrated one of the protests, and his actions, forcing his way past a police officer, reportedly led to the mass tear-gassing of a group of actual Occupy Wall Street protesters, and reinforced the concept in the minds of some people who were already against Occupy Wall Street and who were thus on the lookout for justification for that opposition, that these were violent people pretending to be peaceful. So the behavior of someone who was against the group came to represent the aims and behaviors of the group in the minds of some, including the cops who were present, and who then decided to tear gas everyone, up close and personal in a fairly brutal way. But then, arguably, a lot of the organizational underpinnings of the Occupy Wall Street efforts were predicated on the manipulation of large groups of people toward adjacent, but not identical, or in some cases even similar, causes. Several of the Occupy Wall Street groups were actually built atop existing anarchist groups, and those groups used language and signage that seemed to indicate that they were focused on ending economic inequality, or fighting for gender rights, or one of the many other causes that became wrapped up in the protests by the time they wound down a few years later. But the end goal for these groups was to slowly pull people over to an anarchist ideology, or bare minimum, to get people to feel more comfortable with anarchy because it seemed to align with and be associated with another cause that they already cared about. Further, it was revealed in a 2017 Guardian piece by the guy who started the Occupy movement that foreign agents had tried to co-opt him and his efforts with these protests and the larger organization early on. He eventually discovered that some of these people were associated with a Russian organization called the Internet Research Group, and that they were also behind a slew of social justice-related organizations, including Blacktivist and Do Not Shoot Us, both of which were very popular organizations built atop social media, and both of which, alongside the IRA's other groups, tended to capture the loyalty of people who subscribed to the beliefs that they espoused, before slowly nudging those people toward, in some cases, violence. But in other cases, not voting, looking at other people who share similar but not identical beliefs as enemies, and in general fracturing groups that might otherwise work together toward common causes, an approach that the author of this piece refers to as social movement warfare, which would seem to be an apt term for what's happening here, as just this one organization was formed to pull people toward a more extreme version of what they already believed, to give information to police so they could act more aggressively against groups they felt threatened by, 
to make a group of people seem more violent or reactionary than they were, and to stir up division and create or amplify previously non-existent or non-volatile conflict amongst people who otherwise might find common cause. What I'd like to talk about today is a type of social movement warfare that is taking place online with increasing regularity and which many of us have been exposed to and almost certainly influenced by, whether we realize it or not. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the MIT Technology Review, and it's entitled, Nearly Half of Twitter Accounts Pushing to Reopen America May Be Bots. The basic context for this piece is that researchers at the Carnegie Mellon University Center for Informed Democracy and Social Cybersecurity which tracks multiple aspects of influence campaigns and botnet behaviors over time, related to everything from natural disaster responses to political events, has said that while bot and bot-like traffic typically makes up around 10-20% to of the total activity surrounding a particular discussion, they found that discussions about COVID-19 have way more than that, about 45-60% to of the conversations happening on some social networks. It's just bots jabbering on, sometimes to each other, but often to humans who are also on that network. This traffic includes baseless conspiracy theories, but also bad medical advice and other bits of anti-data, which confuse and drown out the legitimate conversations that are taking place in which real, truthful information is shared. What typically happens as a result of bots of this kind entering any conversation is that the topic then becomes more polarized. And that's often the point here, just as spies and other bad actors would try to influence civil rights groups and the Occupy Wall Street protests to create rifts and push peaceful groups toward extremes, including violence. Bots and bot-like entities in online conversations often go in with the intention to drown out legitimate conversation and debate, and to replace it with outrage, anger, and general shoutiness. This specific study was done on 200 million tweets about the terms coronavirus or COVID-19, which have been posted on Twitter since January 2020, and it homed in on 16 typical behaviors seen in bots, each of which serve different strategic ends, including bridging, which pulls two communities together, often to create conflict, backing, which through a variety of means inflates the follower count or other prestige-linked attributes of someone on the internet in order to increase their implied legitimacy and the volume of their megaphone, and nuking, which involves doing something, seemingly as the member of a group, to get that group removed from the network or to make the other members of the group leave. During the research period, bots accounted for 82% of the 100 most influential retweeters on Twitter, and for 62% of the 1,000 most influential regarding these topics. Building this kind of network, where gobs of bot accounts are spun up, used, reskinned with new avatars and bios, and then used for other purposes, once they've gained some followers, 
all of them supporting the efforts of all the others like a swarm, is sometimes, when done in a more automated way, considered to be a type of botnet, while in other cases, when it's more hands-on, it's considered to be the work of sock puppet accounts, humans pretending to be a bunch of fake people using fake profiles that they manage. In both cases, though, it represents what Facebook has called coordinated, inauthentic behavior, which is a very literal way of defining something that is almost always done with a broader goal in mind, most often and most successfully done by governments and government-affiliated organizations, and which social networks of all kinds struggle with, but which networks like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube in particular seem to struggle with an outsized amount, in part probably because of their size relative to other networks, in part because of their mainstream appeal and influence, and in part because it's suspected their guidelines for such things tend to be a lot more lax than on some other networks. Facebook coined that phrase for this behavior in late July of 2018, when they announced their formal findings related to accounts they'd been tracking since the reputational fallout they experienced in the wake of the 2016 United States presidential election. The entities they reported upon in this announcement were more recent, but still presumably tied to those that they had been tracking previously. And many of them fell into the category of what Facebook executives called, quote, determined, well-funded adversaries who will never give up and are constantly changing tactics, end quote. Some of the accounts divulged in this announcement were popular, well-followed accounts, while others were pages that had fewer than 10 followers, or were Instagram accounts that had only ever posted one image. What was alarming to these executives, though, was that they all seemed to tie back to a central command structure that was connected to, or operated by, the Russian Internet Research Agency, which is the same organization mentioned in the intro as having tried to co-opt the Occupy Wall Street movement early on through its founder. The Internet Research Agency is probably, we don't know for 100% certain, but this is what is suspected by intelligence agencies around the world, it's probably funded and run by a Russian oligarch, a very rich Russian guy who has deep personal and professional ties to the Russian president Vladimir Putin, who runs three different companies that we're aware of that have tried to influence international politics, mostly, but not exclusively, in Europe and the United States, including the 2016 U.S. presidential election and the 2018 U.S. midterm elections. He and some of his associates, including those working for and with these companies, face economic sanctions and criminal charges in the United States as a result of the investigations that have been done into these efforts. The Internet Research Agency does a lot of this kind of work, but they're perhaps best known as a troll farm. They go into online social spaces and try to stir things up, which can be useful unto itself when it prevents people within those social spaces from working together and sharing accurate information. But it can also serve larger purposes at times, like creating rifts between groups and potential collaborators, and over time, reducing faith in democratic systems and specific government entities within countries like the United States. They've also gotten very good at amplifying and at times creating new fronts 
in the burgeoning online culture war between various interest and identity groups. Some of the groups that Facebook identified as having been created by the Internet Research Agency include Atslan Warriors, Black Elevation, Mindful Being, and Resistors. If you subscribe to an identity-based group on the Internet, whatever that group's supposed cause and founding story, there's a chance that it was actually started by a group like this one, or is being influenced by it through sock puppet accounts managed by people who professionally stir up trouble within such groups. And that's true whether you're a church lady, a gun enthusiast, an anti-Trump Republican, a somewhat far-left Bernie fan, a yoga practitioner, a Black Lives Matter activist, a Native American rights protester, a women's rights activist. The specific group is less important than the fact that there are people who identify with these groups and the ideas that they amplify. When someone wears this type of identity, like a name tag, they are easier to manipulate, and it's a simple enough process to get people to believe or do things that they otherwise wouldn't if they hear about such things via these groups to which they subscribe and with which they identify. It's also relatively simple to get people to view folks in other groups as enemies, or in some cases as allies, using similar tactics. And again, this is not limited to one group, one political polarity, or just people who are gullible. It's suspected that part of the reason that Facebook decided not to warn everyone who has been exposed to content from these fake groups that they had been exposed to potentially misleading or manipulative information is that they would have had to send such warnings to essentially everyone. If you're thinking that this applies to everyone but you, you're almost certainly wrong. It's more or less all of us, and those of us who believe quite strongly in something, anything, are the most likely of all to have been targeted and perhaps influenced by these efforts. This slow-dawning revelation within Facebook's ranks was also inconvenient for the company, because part of how the IRA operates is by purchasing advertisements that will be shown to specific demographics. So they create groups and stimulate turmoil within the comments, but they also target us with very accurate advertisements that are meant to trigger something in us, which means they can slowly build up a subconscious rapport with us by posting inspirational quotes and seemingly common-sense rallying cries against our perceived enemies, and then they can nudge us toward action, toward joining groups that they control, or simply adjusting our perspective when it comes to a particular concept, ideology, or vote over the course of months. That Facebook makes money when they perform these sorts of manipulations is very uncomfortable for Facebook, and that taking down the groups and ads that are tied to these manipulating organizations would piss some people off. People who love the group that they're a part of because it seems to speak truths that they want to hear and reinforces their existing beliefs. That is equally disconcerting. There are not a lot of good options for Facebook in this case because they would get called out for being money grabbers if they allowed these groups to keep operating within their space using their tools. But if they do act more firmly and decisively, they'll almost certainly catch non-manipulators in their nets as well and delete innocent groups and profiles alongside the foreign influence campaigning ones. 
and some people would no doubt side with their favorite ideology-reinforcing groups over the upper brass at Facebook. Because that upper brass would be telling them that those groups are not what they seem to be. And in some people's minds, that would equate to being told by these higher-ups that they were tricked, they were gullible, they fell for these ruses. And in some cases, it's easier psychologically to just deny that possibility than to allow oneself to believe that it could be one. There's also the problem of filtering for these sorts of behaviors in the first place. What these Russian groups are doing is not substantially different from what other groups and individuals are doing, sometimes with very similar manipulation-related purposes in mind. And that might mean it's a homegrown, U.S.-based dark money interest group looking to influence election results toward their preferred ends. But in some cases, it's just individuals who believe strongly that Trump needs to be removed from office or that Second Amendment gun rights are the most important rights that a U.S. citizen has. And because of these beliefs, their behaviors end up looking very similar to a foreign influence campaign. It's identity politicking and attempted conversion and electoral manipulation, regardless of where the money is coming from, who's spending it, and what end goals those running these campaigns might have. Perhaps the most uncomfortable reality, though, for Facebook, and for all social networks, really, is that these information campaigns, whatever their sources, whatever their intended outcomes, are really good for business. And that's true even when there aren't any direct advertisement purchases involved. Ultimately, all of these networks, all of the big popular ones, as of the first half of 2020 at least, rely on advertising as their prime source of revenue. And they're able to charge for ads based on engagement numbers. Those numbers determined by how much people on these networks view stuff, click on stuff, comment on stuff, and share stuff. How much we all engage in myriad trackable ways with the content published on these networks. That means more engagement of whatever kind tends to be good for Facebook, for Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, for Twitter, for YouTube. And engagement caused by outrage and anger and tribalism tends to be both easier to stimulate and a whole lot more abundant overall. Fulfillment, happiness, education, content that causes these kinds of things does exist on these networks, but it's often more expensive and time-consuming to create and to instill in viewers. It's far, far easier to get people riled up about a perceived enemy to get people angry or upset about some idiot doing something that we can look down upon them for. And a lot more engagement occurs over time when we can get people to bundle up into tribes, to share perceived affiliation with strangers, and engage with groups of supposed allies over time, as this can lead to more thoughtless clicking, sharing, posting, and collaborating in a way that's easier for manipulative interest groups to guide and social network owners to monetize. It's possible for these networks to not be evil then, and I think even the most ardent anti-social network activist would have to admit that the people behind these networks are not inherently evil in some way. But it does seem to be increasingly obvious that those people tend to benefit from what most others would consider to be negative behaviors and outcomes. The incentives are lined up in such a way that they would be financially foolish to clamp down on all this manipulative behavior, while those doing the manipulating are likewise incentivized 
to keep up what's working, making tweaks here and there to account for the gestures the networks make at changes, while generally continuing to operate as they always have, within a relatively friendly environment for this sort of strategy. What these bots represent within that existing morass is an amplification of certain messages and movements. They can make it seem like there's a great deal more hubbub around a particular topic than there actually is, and they can reinforce certain ideas and behaviors in the minds of the actual human beings who are on these networks. If you see someone who seems to be like you, treating a particular topic in a particular way, you'll be more inclined, by default, to assume that this is the prevailing wisdom within your economic, political, religious, or other tribal group, and seriously consider, and perhaps even adopt, that idea or perspective, or stance or behavior for yourself. These networks' algorithms, likewise, tend to be oriented around surfacing more of what's popular, in turn, making these burgeoning popular things even more popular. So if you can get your botnet to tweet and retweet about a given topic, there's a chance that these algorithms will look at that topic as a genuinely popular thing and elevate it to the surface for more people in a way that implies that this is something that people are actually talking about, and therefore it's a real topic of legitimate consideration, even though it truly may have been nothing before these bots started jabbering about it. What's more, sometimes these bots can influence the larger, more journalistic element of a given discussion. This is especially true on Twitter, which is one of the smaller, large social networks, but arguably the most politically and journalistically influential, as it tends to be where all the politicians and journalists and experts in a variety of fields hang out, including leaders of entire countries, and the higher-ups in pretty much every organization on the planet. Consequently, if you run a botnet, a network of these bots, you can make it look like a particular topic is the talk of the online town. And even though that's not actually the case, if some of these journalists or experts or politicians see their feeds cluttered with bots, or people parroting the talking points of these bots, for or against, they might take up that same topic, using the botnet's initial framing as their own framing. Or if they're a politician, and their feed seems to be filled with commentary by their seeming constituents, and again, these may be bots pretending to be people, or they might be real people, parroting or informed by bots. These politicians who have no reason to think that this is not an actual issue or talking point for their constituents will potentially bring up that topic and say that they'll do something about it, because that's what politicians, who want to be seen to be doing their job, often do. This, too, makes it more likely that a non-news item or a false framing of a story will become a legit news item to which the mainstream press then pays attention. In this way, the human tendency to put our ears to the ground to try to understand what's happening and what might happen next acts as a sort of leash by which these bots and trolls can jerk us around and in some cases lead us in a particular direction that they prefer. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. This has almost certainly happened to you at least once and perhaps even repeatedly and continuously without you realizing it. Statistically, it is just so common 
that it would be surprising if you hadn't had your thinking influenced by these types of activities at some point, and perhaps nearly all the time, depending on how engaged you are in these spaces. You don't have to be ignorant or unintelligent to be manipulated in this way. You just have to be looking for information and acting upon that information, which is something that all of us do to some degree or another, especially on social networks. There's movement within the world of social networks, though, beyond mere countermeasures against what these earlier reports have found in terms of botnets and troll armies manipulating foreign politics and social movements. Part of this is the result of rumblings within governments worldwide that they may try to rein in the power that these networks wield and try to stem the tide of some of the worst behaviors and consequences of behaviors within their digital halls. In the United States, this means the dawning of potential antitrust, that is, anti-monopoly, lawsuits and investigations, some of which are already underway. While in other countries, it means looking into taxes and the republishing of news without paying news sources, and in some cases leveraging massive fees if these networks don't pull down illegal or questionable content immediately. Facebook, in recent years, has slowly unveiled a sort of plan to help lessen some of the worst behaviors on their networks, including more transparency about who's buying advertisements on their service. It's annoying to some that they don't just block bad actors when they know what they're up to, but Facebook's argument is that they're trying to maintain free speech, first and foremost, and this way at least, journalists can go through and see who posted what and then tell the story of who's trying to convince whom to do what things, or adopt which perspectives. I get their point, that they're trying to avoid a slippery slope towards censorship, but I also understand the frustration of people, everyday people and politicians who can actually maybe do something about this, that Facebook isn't taking a more aggressive stance, especially considering the arguable amounts of harm that they have helped cause, within elections, but also in cases where legit mass murders have taken place because of misinformation on their main platform and on their other platforms like WhatsApp. Twitter, in late May 2020, released a test version of a new reply system that they think might help with some of the abuse and misinformation that currently thrives on their platform. The idea is that rather than anyone and everyone being able to reply to all tweets, however and whenever and however much they want, some people who are part of this experiment can post tweets and limit responses, either allowing everyone to pile on, as per the usual, or tagging specific people who can reply. And only those tagged people can reply to a given tweet, which also means that you can tag no one and post a tweet to which no one can reply. This is potentially useful, in part because it could allow journalists and other entities to do interviews on the service, tagging the one person they're interviewing and creating a back-and-forth conversation without the usual disruptions that most people have come to expect on Twitter. Lots of trolling, lots of angry, tribalist attitudes, and lots of jokes, some bad, some pretty good. But most of these responses cluttering up the actual intended interview content. This could also, importantly, help stem the flow of misinformation that gets attached to a lot of news items. 
In a lot of cases, currently, good information is drowned out in a sea of bad information, and anything posted by an authority about a controversial topic will be followed by, will be commented upon, with a deluge of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, which anyone who reads that initial truthful tweet will be able to easily see right there beneath the main tweet. The downside of this change that they're testing, though, is that a lot of the fact-checking that happens on the network uses that same existing reply system, and that would be stifled. False information could then be posted, and no one, or no one other than the allies of the person posting that incorrect information, would be able to reply to it. So folks seeing that bad information would not be able to see challenges to it right below the tweet in the reply section, as is currently the case. This impending shift, with all the pros and cons that come along with it, is representative of what's happening in the world of communication in general, I think where every upside has a downside, and every time you try to empower those who are communicating truths and valuable insight, you also inevitably empower those who are trumpeting intentional or accidental mistruths, and those who see every conversation on the internet as an opportunity to mess with someone for their own personal, somewhat masochistic pleasure. We will likely see a lot more action on the governmental front in the coming years, especially once politicians are more freed up from pandemic-related efforts, and are able to return some of their attention to the big tech companies that have flourished under pandemic conditions, providing the world with a great many valuable services, but also increasing the speed at which their competitors have disappeared, while their founders and investors have raked in massively large payouts. Many of the problems that existed before the pandemic, in other words, have been dramatically upscaled, And that will almost certainly lead to more pushback from the government, leading to, potentially, some breakups of the larger companies, but almost certainly more regulation, and perhaps especially regulation implemented with the intention of keeping other, less well-funded entities, like newspapers and smaller businesses, open for business, and to wrap up the many wounds democracies and democratic institutions have taken of late. As a result of all the real issues that have emerged within democratic societies, but also as a consequence of the reputational damage that's been caused by these online influence efforts. None of these efforts is likely to be a silver bullet for what ails social networks, much less society. Critical thinking and investments in an informed electorate have given way to the pleasure of tribing up and getting one over on the perceived other team, and many of us are willing to deny obvious truths and attack shared valuable bits of societal infrastructure if it means we will win a quick victory over the other side. Which means, unfortunately, that all most of us individuals can do for the moment is to try to remember what we value and understand how that translates into larger-scale action and collective behavior. Because lacking that, we have to rely almost entirely on government legislation and corporate self-regulation at least in the near term, and neither of these referees have proven to be as infallible or unbiased as we might like, and honestly as we need, so far. The 
audiobook I'd like to recommend today is one of the great courses, audio courses, and it's called From Yao to Mao, 5,000 Years of Chinese History by Professor Kenneth J. Hammond. This series was particularly interesting because of the long duration of time that it covers, but it also gets into some detail with some moments in Chinese history that are generally overlooked because although they're important as connective tissue, they're not as flamboyant or visual, or they don't directly connect to components of Western history that a lot of these types of courses tend to focus on. Consequently, we miss out on some of those important moments and other moments seem to arise out of nowhere. Whereas, if you can understand those connective tissue moments, you can kind of see the continuity that weaves its way through history and movements in this part of the world. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy from The Great Courses, and I believe it's only available at The Great Courses, but you might check around, of From Yao to Mao, 5,000 Years of Chinese History, by Professor Kenneth J. Hammond. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.